0: On this week's podcast, I'd love to tell you all about the efforts being made to work with different organizations and professionals to increase the understanding of autism. Specifically, how much work is going into better engaging medical examiners and neuropathologists to work with families to donate brain tissue after death. As you know, ASF works very closely with the Autism Brain Net to encourage people to learn more about the program and to educate families about the option of brain donation. But we also realize that that isn't enough. We need to better target physicians who work with families at a very difficult time. These include medical examiners, neuropathologists, and organ procurement organizations. You guys remember me reporting back on a presentation given last year at the National Association of Medical Examiners, or NAME, at a meeting in Minneapolis. If you follow ASF on Facebook, you also might remember it coincided with a furry convention at the same hotel, which was made it kind of fun. Anyway, ABN gave a presentation at that meeting, and we hope to give a presentation at this year's meeting, this time in Phoenix. This year's presentation will focus on how many projects can be supported by just one donation. But in addition to making these presentations in large groups, it's also important to talk one-on-one with medical examiners from large offices across the U.S. and to learn from what works best for them in their particular offices for their staff. ASF participated in such a meeting a few weeks ago, hosted by the Simons Foundation, who leads the Autism Brain Net. At this meeting, six medical examiners and neuropathologists, and I'll explain in a minute who neuropathologists are, came to New York and we discussed, among other things, how and if the medical examiners can be recognized for their work with ABN, what ABN staff can do to educate people in their offices, and how consent of families can be obtained through medical examiners. And who the best people are at their offices to get involved. The goal of the meeting was to foster relationships with those offices and incorporate their ideas into outreach. This will be different from the outreach and communication to families at community events, but important nonetheless. In addition to medical examiners, neuropathologists are also very important to this effort. This week, In LA, the American Association of Neuropathologists, over 300 of them from around the country, participated in a symposium about autism. This symposium included continuing education credits to be their carrot to sit and learn. Who are neuropathologists? They're specially trained physicians who use either biopsy tissue from the brain and sometimes skin or whole brain from autopsy to better understand array of disease. They look for things like big tumors or abnormal cells within tumors, or even changes in cells which may explain cause of death, including microscopic alterations in cell size, cell number, or tissue damage. You may have heard the name Alois Alzheimer. Well, he discovered Alzheimer's disease. He was a neuropathologist. They have their own training program, and they work closely with other doctors. Since they study brain tissue at different stages of life, they're an important group to better work with to understand the structural and cellular changes that go on in the brains of people with autism. They also are accustomed to working with advocacy groups on research. For example, they have strong ties to organizations that study sudden infant unexplained death or crib death. They've been working with them for years. At this meeting, where ABN, of course, had a booth and answered questions and distributed materials engaged neuropathologists, there was an afternoon session all about autism. First, tissue researcher from Manny Casanova from the University of South Carolina explained to the audience how to recognize the features of autism, both clinically and pathologically. While again, neuropathologists cannot diagnose autism solely by looking at brain tissue, They may come across an individual with ASD and notice some of the hallmark pathological features. These include shapes and patterns of cells in the brain. Sometimes cells don't always go to their correct places during development, which cause what's called heterotopias. The wrong cells go to the wrong places and they're in a state of arrested development. And when I say Arrested Development, I don't mean the hilarious TV show coming back for their first season. I'm talking about the fact that some cells don't develop normally and don't become full adult cells. Specifically, cells get stuck in the white matter and don't end up in the gray matter of the front part of the brain, where neuronal cell bodies are supposed to be. And if they get to the cortex, the regular organization of the cells, which form columns in a person without autism, are all swooshed together in those with autism. Well, why is this important? Because the many columns in the cortex are too close together in people with autism, they can't communicate properly. The neurons between the columns called interneurons don't function in the right way or in fact are fewer. These neurons typically turn down excitatory function of the cells so you can imagine what happens if they are fewer or missing. Too much activity can possibly result in seizures or hypersensitivity. In fact, Dr. Casanova is investigating transcranial magnetic stimulation and neurofeedback to help alleviate some of these particular features of autism. Matt State also came to the meeting, and he told the group all about the genomics of autism and showed videos of people with autism so the audience could get a sense of the disorder across the spectrum. By knowing the genetics, scientists can know in part what causes the pathology. Genetic control early on in development is one piece of how brain cells develop, travel to different sites, and then later function. These may be inherited mutations, or they may be de novo mutations, which aren't seen in parents or siblings. Some of these de novo mutations are only seen in people with autism, although they don't account for all of autism or autism severity. So what happens when autism risk genes are mutated? Well, these autism risk genes control where cells go, called neuronal migration, Like what happens when the cells in the cortex go to the wrong place and end up causing these heterotopias. Some control how neurons communicate with each other, or those that turn on or off genes by altering the way DNA is wound up in the cell. It's important to understand what genes do at a particular point in development, rather than what they do in general, because all of these genes have multiple functions, and that's called pleiotropy. I'll talk more about studying genes at different ages at the end of this podcast when I discuss a new study out of UCSD. Then Eric Wong from UCSF, who is a pediatric neurologist and researcher, also started his own brain bank. The goal of his resource is to study very early brain development, like even before birth, to understand what happens during this very crucial time, which may go awry, leading to things not just like autism, but also things like ALS and Alzheimer's disease. See, now we're back to Alzheimer's disease. He recognizes that in order to understand child development, you have to look at the brains of infants. He focused on neuronal migration, which was brought up by Matt State. There's a lot of young neurons ready to go out to the frontal lobe concentrated in the ventricles of the brain. They are filled with these young neurons, which then migrate and move to the frontest part of the brain. His technology has been able to show the exact path that each neuron takes to get to the proper place. This is particularly important. If they go to the wrong place, then it's possible to think about how to make sure they go to the right place. And what kind of neurons do they become? Actually, these neurons are the ones that slow down neuronal firing. Going back to Manny Casanova's presentation, he showed that people with autism have much fewer of these neurons or interneurons that turn cells off or slow down the activity of other neurons to keep everything in check. As it turns out, most of these neurons that emerge from three to five months of age and go to the front part of the brain are these same neurons that are lacking in the brains of people with autism. Genes that control neuronal migration that are also autism risk genes seem to contribute to the neuropathology seen in ASD. Finally, Matt Anderson, who's a node director for ABN in Boston, Discuss the overlap between genes involved in autism and those with intellectual disability and epilepsy, as well as specific genes for specific behaviors. For example, autism risk genes in mice that increase repetitive behaviors. So what is the point of all this? What have researchers found as a result? Well, lots. For example, the animal models that exist to screen drugs don't exist without knowing what goes on in the brains of actual people with autism to compare it to. The role of different genes and how they affect function has been better understood. Of course, postmodern brain tissue is not going to be used as a diagnostic marker, but what we know about when and how changes occur in the brain will help with different efforts in diagnosis and intervention, specifically treatment for subtypes and those with specific behaviors. But what has brain tissue done for us lately? Recently, the Court Shane Lab at UCSD published their most recent findings from brain tissue they've been studying for many years. His group is particularly interested in individuals with large head size that seems to be present at birth. Of course, this isn't everyone with autism, but it's a percentage, and the mechanisms of early brain overgrowth is not known. In their study, they focused on the prefrontal cortex, which has been tied to autism previously and also mentioned by Eric Wong and Matt State in those previous presentations. In their study, they focused on the prefrontal cortex, which has been tied to autism previously and does show the most profound amount of early brain overgrowth. It was also mentioned as a crucial area by all of the presenters at the neuropathology meeting. By studying genetic expression in this tissue in young people and older people with autism, they found genes disrupted that were common to both ages and some that were more profoundly affected in younger ages and some more affected in older individuals. In the autism brain, there was dysregulation in gene pathways that were responsible for how many cells are present in the brain, how they connect each other, how they develop into neurons or other types of brain cells. In adults, there were different genetic changes. There was dysregulation, meaning some genes were turned up and some genes were turned down, relating to cell signaling and repair of damaged cells and generation of new cells. This suggests, as the author says explicitly, a shift in the different processes that control brain development versus ongoing maintenance of brain connections in adulthood. But their findings weren't all about divergent mechanisms of genetic control. There were some commonalities across ages. For example, some genes controlled cell cycles, how cell moves into different phases of development, how they divide from each other, and how they develop into their own cells. In addition, there were mutations in immune system genes and growth factors and genes in what's known as the WNT pathway. Their results add to an existing pile of evidence that genetic dysregulation in the developing brain leads to abnormal regional patterning, excessive prefrontal neurons, cortical overgrowth, and neural dysfunction in autism. These findings also converge with more structural studies that demonstrate that the differences in the brain of people with autism versus those without autism do not stay the same across time. They change. This calls attention to the changing needs of people with autism and provides neurobiological evidence for changes in symptoms, severity, and appearance of new features as people get older. Thank you for listening this week, and I'll talk to you next week.